That is the sound of the Bialetti stovetop coffee maker telling me it's time to sit down and travel to a forgotten time, a forgotten world. Pour yourself an espresso or a glass of Malbec and prepare for another journey in the world of the octopus wars. Our first letter comes from Ira from Pittsburgh, and he states, I am a big fan of Catface Laguna. I heard that one time there was a group of snobby, upper-class tourists from Buenos Aires, the big city, and they were in Catface restaurant, and Catface went up to their table and said, Is anything right with your food? Thank you, Ira. That is a funny one. I will put that into the archives. That is certainly something that old Catface would say. Another reader stated that the Bruja Madridi was mentioned in episode one, but that much was not explained about him. <clears throat> well, thanks to Dania Aurelia, I have the following about Madridi. In the dark mountains of the Andes lived the witch Isidro Madridi. He was responsible for overseeing most of the magical events of the province of Mendoza. Most of his magic was quotidian, curing colds, indigestion, Evil Eye, and Empacho. We did hear about Empacho in episode one. We will learn more about the Great Madridi in some later episodes, so please stay tuned. We also received from John Enzo Rizzo from New Jersey a beautiful drawing of the translucer walking through the canals of Venice. I wish I could show it to you right now, but I will make sure to upload it on the Octopus Wars website. Our next letter came from Andy from South Carolina. Hey, this is Andy, and I live in South Carolina, and I have a question for you. Because the last few times that I've gone to Argentina, of course, one of my favorite things to do is eat barbecue. And the last time I went, I kept going back to the same places over and over again to try to understand small differences between the dishes and the preparation techniques. And of course, I found myself talking to some of the asadors and getting their, you know, ideas on, on what they're doing. And there was one night I was drinking a little bit. I was with some friends. I'm not exactly sure, but I think I heard someone say that one of the best asadors in Argentina refuses to speak about the food that he makes? Do you know anything about this? The answer, Andy, is yes, I certainly do. You are bringing up the topic of the famous restaurant Caldo Major, which was mentioned in episode one. Caldo Major. 20 minutes before the sun descended into the Andes and the night made its arrival, the lamps of the tree-lined streets would turn on and the Mendocinos could begin to smell the charcoals of Chef Tandil's Quincho Grill. Tandil, the former chef of Caldo Major, which means superior broth, was famous for serving the best dishes and for never uttering a word about them. His Quincho, constructed by the engineer Don Boca, was the only one to have six cast iron grill grates one atop the other, and each replete with mochejas, eye of rump, morcillas, entraña, chinchulines, salchichas, parrilleras, tira de asado, and reddish chorizos criollos, which were loaded with white pepper, nutmeg, red wine, and cumin. Chef Tandil had just arrived from Buenos Aires after having worked at the famous Caldo Major. 
He always wore a black beret and a red bandana around his neck. He was the undisputed authority on asado and parrillada, which means barbecue. At the age of six, he was asked if he preferred Hereford or Angus and replied that it depends on the kind of wood that one is burning, the cut, and whether the cows are from the humid pampas or the dry pampas. Jeff Tandil would quietly leave the dish at your table without saying a word. Catface Laguna once told a patron at El Pinguino that there were seven theories concerning why Chef Tandil never spoke about his food. But, according to a scholar who discovered documents archived at the University of Chicago, these theories are wrong. Out of respect, the Mendocinos never asked him a question about the food. They were happy to have him in Mendoza and heard the rumor that he left Buenos Aires because a tourist who had too much to drink asked him aloud, and to the dismay of all the other patrons, why the eye of the rump was repeatedly shifted in the quincho between the middle grate and the bottom grate. When Chef Tandil arrived in Mendoza, he was greeted at the train station by Mayor Galfini, who considered banning journalists and philosophers from the new restaurant because they asked too many questions. Hey, Ezekiel. This is Jed from Ukiah. I'm loving the podcast, and it's so great to hear all the stories from the octopus wars. It's excellent. Um, hey, I got a quick question for you um, about Dr. DeVartolo. The question I have is, he had this um, interesting idea that the ill become accustomed to being ill. And I find that really interesting. And I had heard growing up in Ukiah that he got this belief um, when he was battling Parlicans. But I don't know if that's true or not. And I would love to hear some more information about it. Thanks so much, Ezekiel. Can't wait to hear the answer. Jed, thank you so much for your letter. I have heard that Dr. DeVartolo fell upon this belief after dealing with the infestations of the Ayo Harlequins. From what I recall, the tale went something like this. Another tale from the world of the Octopus Wars. The Ayo Harlequins. This story is brought to you uh, thanks to Trucha Vineyards. Uh, we thank them for their support. The Ayo Harlequins. In the countryside of Cordoba, high above the mineral streams that flow between giant boulders that are beige in color, there are the ruins of a roofless house. For reasons unknown, the house was never completed and the structure was quietly bequeathed to the flora of Mina Clavero, the region of Mina Clavero. Each brick forming the doorways of its house and the windows and its walls are all covered by ivy and moss. Once in a while, the local children would use it as a hedge maze. It was in the living room of this roofless house that, during warm summer nights, Juan Vitoro and Sir Philip Jennings from Scotland Yard would discuss unsolved mysteries, all while the local cordoveses were attending asados, barbecues, and outdoor dances illuminated by paper lanterns hanging from plain trees. 
Each night, the two men would solve cases over some wine and with the golden light provided by two kerosene lanterns. No one could interrupt their discussions up there as the house is reachable only by burro, by donkey. On the trail up to the ruins, one could see what the provincianos called mica, or purple quartz, lying on the sand here and there, shining like precious diamonds. These large chunks of amethyst were never perturbed, only because they were so plentiful. It was on one of these nights that Juan Vitoro and Philip Jennings discussed the infestation of Ayo Harlequins in the region of Cujo, that is, the provinces of Mendoza, San Juan, and San Luis. The following facts about this mysterious event from Annotation 6 were archived by Sir Philip Jennings. Annotations 2 through 5 are missing from the historical record because of a subsequent infestation of the Io Harlequins in 1964. Those annotations were unfortunately written in too artistic a manner by a Muscat farmer and romantic poet by the name of Banega from Balvanera. Sir Philip Jennings from Scotland Yard stated the following. The Io Harlequin, also known as the Purple Pest or Plato, stands only three feet tall and wears a hooded cloak that is thick and crimson in color. It has no face, but only an oval metal plate for its countenance. Hence, they're being called platos, which means plate, uh, in Salta and Jujuy. The plate is slightly convex, thereby always reflecting the moon. Hence, they're being called los caralunas, the moon-faced ones, in Córdoba. The pests bring drowsiness and apathy to whichever town they infest. Infestations have unfortunately occurred in many towns of our fine country. According to Dr. DeVartolo, the Io Harlequin is a stealthy biped with small arms that are always hidden beneath the cloak. These creatures, which leave a scent that resembles mashed potatoes with too much butter, can be detected only if one makes unexpected movements of the head or eyes, movements that cannot be anticipated. Banega reports, if one turns quickly enough, then one might catch sight of one on the back left. Io harlequins vanish the moment one catches a glimpse of them. Hence, they must be slingshot rapidly with a special potato preparation. From many experiments conducted in Buenos Aires, Dr. DeVartolo learned that the potatoes must be Andean and soaked for 10 days in a syrup made from the Malbec grape. No other grape will do. Their eradication a la papa, which means by means of the potato, must transpire quickly before the exterminators become too apathetic, a condition known as the purple abulia. One time an exterminator afflicted with the disease stated, why all this hard work a la papa when we can just live in peace with them? It was Juan Vitoro from episode three who discovered that the pests caused their effects by stealing the dreams of the inhabitants of the infested town. Juan Vitoro inferred this from Father Agustin's complaint that children were no longer daydreaming at church, thereby becoming fidgety and disrupting the Mass, and from the observation that artists such as Lars Strack 
were frustrated because they were no longer visited by artistic visions. Juan Vitoro realized that the creatures would steal not only dreams, but also the products of dreams, such as works of art or manuscripts. Such items have been used successfully in Banega traps. Mayor Galfini declared, What we have here is an infestation. Anything whimsical, dreamlike, or unpredictable is captured and broken by these things. I urge you all, citizens of Mendoza, to make sure that no public record or medical record be written in an artistic manner. Painter Stellario became despondent after realizing that not one of his paintings were taken during the infestation of 1944. Banega from Balvanera, a Muscat farmer and romantic poet, provides the only first-hand account of how the infestation started in Mendoza. I was at the bottom of the foothills of the Precordillera. In my mind's eye, I could right now smell the October winds of that fateful night and see the smoke-like clouds scurrying eastward. I looked to the top of the foothills and saw, next to the branches of our majestic spiny juju pine, with its dark green needles tipped with shiny droplets of metallic sap, two silver faceless faces reflecting the Andean moonlight. I then noticed that the creatures were wearing a crimson hood, which stood out underneath the moonlight and next to the green pine needles which turned from green to metallic blue depending on the movements of the clouds. I remember thinking, as magical as it may look, it is perfectly natural for each droplet of sap at the end of a pine needle to reflect the Andean moonlight, the movement of the clouds, and the flights of the condors. Such is the nature of these crystal globes and of the precordillera, whose towering pines, sycamores, and cypress protect our city of Mendoza from the many mysterious things that dwell in the Andes, but that do not belong here, in our land of the sun and good wine. But what is unnatural and does not belong here is the presence of a creature wearing a hooded cloak of crimson and having no face but only a metal oval plate to serve as its facha, which means face. To my horror, I then noticed that there was not one but two of these creatures, with each one looking toward the lights of our city, which rested peacefully at the bottom of the mountain. The spiny juju pine needles could no longer keep them from having a clear view of our home. I watched with dread as the two purple pests looked at each other before deciding to descend down the mountain like drops of wine gliding down a bottle's label. After combing the literature, Dr. De Vartolo found a potential Plato repellent. The French, who call these pests dream capturers, discovered that giant black stallions from Austria, magnificent beasts that are four times larger than any horse in our continent, are effective at repelling the creatures. But no scientist knew why. The city of Mendoza purchased four of these horses from Austria, and this solved the problem of future infestations. The horses were decorated with silver reins and silver blinkers. No one could mount them, so they were led only by hand. 
The Io Harlequins already inside the city had to be removed painstakingly, one by one, a la Papa. The Battle of La Gran Papa occurred when, on the midnight of October 8th, the young Bohemians lured many of the pests with paintings by the great painter Lars Strack to a vineyard full of potato-loaded slingshots and banega traps. After the infestation, on every night the giant black horses walked through the streets of Mendoza. The Mendocinos welcomed the loud sounds of the stallions walking upon the black cobblestones, for it assured them that on that night they were safe from Io Harlequins and could have a dream or two. Everyone helped and took turns to lead the horses during the lonely night shift. It was only Dr. DeVartolo who figured out why these magnificent beasts were so effective at repelling the pests. It was because of the whimsical, unpredictable nature of the fidgety movements made by their tails. Dr. DeVartolo concluded, The uncertainty regarding the movement of whether it occurs at all goes rightwards, leftwards, downwards or upwards, perturbs the mind of the purple pest. Dr. DeVartolo calculated that the probability of predicting a given tail movement was 0. 0.00000000003. Next letter is from Stephen from New York City. I have heard and read so many different versions of Last Voyage to Coronado and about the mystery of Max Hassman. Do you happen to know the official account? Stephen, thank you so much for your letter. And I have to say that I do have the official account. And because of this, there is so much excitement about this particular episode and what occurred with Max von Hassmann. Um, at least what occurred toward the end of his life. We have also obtained um, this valuable recording from 1955. There was a family by the name of Hasman who emigrated to Mendoza in the 1930s from London. The grandfather remained behind in Saxony. Some have seen some of the family members in San Luis. And we have also obtained this rare recording from a Doña Adolfina. This was recorded perhaps in the 1960s. Mira, te digo una cosa, que el Kaiser era un loco y siempre andaba en moto con, con ese gato extraño. The recording states something to the effect of, look here, the Kaiser was uh, crazy and he always was on the motorcycle with that strange looking cat. And here is the official account of Last Voyage to Coronado. The account is a first-person account, which is rare for us, from Romy, one of the young Bohemians, and some investigations reveal that his name was actually Romulus. So this is Romulus's first-person account of the mystery of Max von Hassmann and the last voyage, the fateful last voyage to Coronado. Thank you. 
On my eighth birthday, grandma made gnocchi bolognese and Uncle Isidro, known to many as the spinach, took the time to teach me something which he considered to be very important. The spinach, a poor gambler and small-time rip-off artist, wore an old felt hat that had become less and less greenish as the years passed. But that's not how he earned the name. Romy, he said to me, it's now time that you learn something about this life. And don't worry, he interjected. I'm not going to bring up how I was right in taking Uncle Monty's money. At that point, he scratched the bottom of his chin and said, Listen and observe carefully and make sure that your innocent mother is not around. Before I had a chance to scout the area, the spinach looked left to right, as if being overly cautious was a habit learned from having been caught so many times saying so many bad things. Unfortunately, many of the things that the spinach said were true, especially this time. He handed me a poorly wrapped package with gold strings all about it. I could tell that he had wrapped it himself, which immediately aroused my suspicion, for men in this family don't wrap anything unless they're up to something shady. Happy birthday, said the spinach. I began unwrapping the gift with that easily elicited excitement of youth only to find that the box was empty. What's the idea? I asked. How do you feel? Bad, I guess, I said. Well, said the spinach, if you learn to deal with this, with this feeling you have right now, and if you learn to deal with disappointments one after the other, you'll be one of the few who are content in this miserable world, in this wretched life. Do you understand what I mean? One day you'll thank me, for I gave you the best gift you could ever receive. I responded in the affirmative, I never really understood what he meant until 10 years later when my story begins. Maybe the events to be disclosed occurred because the afternoon was too long that day in the city of Mendoza. The province of vineyards, mountains, and condors rested underneath a vernal sun which gave its immigrants no choice but to accept their new reality, that they walked, slept, and ate in the southern cone of a new and distant continent. Far away from Europe, far away from the world. How could it be that we are actually closer to Antarctica than to Italy? The immigrants thought as they shook their heads. Crazy Cole, Pachito, Aledro, Fat Grano, and I, Romy, squandered many hours at the Café Astoria, the unofficial social and political center of the city. Some of the more distinguished regulars, such as the young but respected artist Lars Strack, did not speak so much. Strack would sit at a table and gently sketch out the surroundings, drawing a tree here and a coffee mug there. That day he happened to be drawing an Astoria chair, which had a stylish maroon on black italicized A painted on its back. On the chair sat a fat amorphous man with the semblance of any old Italian who had his share of cannelloni and pampa beef. Chito commented that the picture should be titled Fat Pigeon on the Ledge, or better yet, Waiting for Death and More Gnocchi. Strack smiled and softly replied that titling pictures should be left to writers who spend their time writing and not to painters who have chosen to paint instead. That's interesting and you have a good argument, replied Pachito but you should call it waiting for death anyway. 
To all at the Astoria, it was implicitly a knowledge that Crazy Cole, the slender gentleman with the slick black hair, was the indisputable leader of the young Bohemians. Though no Bohemian would dare attest to it, for such a thing is against the whole Bohemian philosophy. It turns out Crazy Cole, too, was an artist of sorts. It had been rumored, as always, by somebody's aunt, that on his 16th birthday, Cole had painted a huge skull on the wall of his bedroom. The depiction was far from accurate, with its two large, peering eyeballs and a long, salivating tongue. Unfortunately, this whim of his cost him 16 nights of good sleep and spoiled whatever diplomatic favor he could ever find in Grano's father. First, he complained about nightmares involving the skull. Then, he said that at precisely 2.30 a.m. on each night, the eyes of the presence would shift from left to right until fixating upon his innocent self, uttering, Cole, Cole, in a deep voice over and over. The worst was when the nefarious tongue of the thing would try to steal his bedsheets. The nightmares persisted even after he and Fat Grano covered the skull with six cans worth of black shoe polish that belonged to Grano's fathers. From this and many other incidents, all of which were true, Cole acquired the most honorable of Argentine appellations, Loco, which means crazy. Part 2. The Voyage to Coronado Time had passed and the sun was now directly over the Astoria. The Bohemians were beginning to feel sleepy when suddenly, to the surprise of everyone at the cafe, Max von Hassmann showed up on his motorcycle, wearing his famous black cape and having his only companion, Faust, the Siamese cat, peering from the sidecar. Looking more like a chihuahua than a cat, Faust was a sophisticated little feline who never showed signs of fear or unease, even when driven at 90 miles per hour by the German madman. Hassmann, known to everyone as the Kaiser, was always thought to be an oddball who made a big entrance. But he was also believed to have died six years ago in a duel over a woman. This was his greatest entrance ever. Nevertheless, no one at the Astoria displayed shock or said anything, as always. The Kaiser got off his motorcycle and said in broken Spanish, for those of you who are interested in witnessing an important and noble declaration, I will be back in two hours to take you to Coronado. He and Faust then sped away on the loud vehicle. The patrons of the Astoria reacted in different ways to the Kaiser's invitation, depending on age, I think. At one end of the spectrum was Don Pellegrino, the Astoria owner, who mumbled something to the effect of, crazy son of a gun. At the other extreme were the young Bohemians, who saw the invitation as an opportunity to see Coronado and learn more about the mysterious past of the great Kaiser, added Cole. But before any important decisions were ever made, the Bohemians always consulted the professor, an old eccentric who sat in the deep interior of the Astoria, where there was never enough light to read. The professor always had on his table several books, three Egyptian statuettes, and a globe of the world, 
Nobody really knew what he was a professor of. I see you are interested in seeing the great town of Coronado, the town in the Andes, said the professor. And I am sure that you have come to ask me, Ejio Elfemore Rivarola, for advice about going. Am I right? The professor had a way of saying every little thing as if it were extremely important. We never heard of Coronado being spoken about with such gravitas. We all nodded our heads and found chairs. Of course I am right, he said. And of course you will go, for youth will always seek adventure. It is a fact of life. Things don't change. Young hearts seek adventure, and adventures they will find, even in Mendoza, even in the Astoria, even at the Bolsa Theater. The desire to have things happen is the adventure. But beware, for such desires are safe here, but not there in the Andes. He stood and pointed to the west. Grano looked toward the mountains. And let me go on to clarify that there is no such thing as the Andes, at least not what you envisioned them to be. I'll tell you what there is. There are elevations of land produced by the collision of continental plates, collisions which occurred by a mistake made millions of years ago. There is rock, soil, quartz, and sand, and some forms of life, but no Andes. Yet, when youthful eyes such as yours gaze upon these mountains, the Andes become alive. The condors reawaken and leave their large nests, taking flight into the cool moonlight. The lioness becomes restlessly hungry, and the phosphors, which the uneducated campesino calls the bad light, they begin to seduce and confuse the weak mind of man, the mind that can't tolerate large skies and dark mountains. This is why we have lost so many young men to the Andes, but the old men always return. So go, go to the Andes, but go with the hearts of old men. And what do you know of the Kaiser? asked Cole. Hmm. Max von Hasmann is the son of a famous general from the Great War, a war before your time. If I recall correctly, his name was Wilhelm von Hasmann. Any case, his son is the victim of small-town mentality and of the rumors of chusmas, gossips who have nothing better to do than gossip while sipping their afternoon mate. Gossips who, without the aid of any hallucinogens, imagine duels that never took place. Would you believe that the young German was presumed dead only because he went to live in San Luis for six years? That was enough information for Cole, who decided at that moment to take the voyage to Coronado. He thought it would be good for the Bohemians to leave the city for a few days. Fat Grano went home to obtain the necessary provisions, which always included olives, bread, and a large stick of dried salami. With the hearts of old men, with the hearts of old men, Cole reminded the Bohemians. We met the Kaiser outside the Astoria precisely two hours after his invitation. There were five of us, 
Co, Pachito, Eledro, Grano, and I, and so we had trouble fitting on and around the Kaiser's motorcycle and sidecar. Cole came up with a solution. He would sit behind the Kaiser on the motorcycle, Grano and I would share the sidecar, and Pachito and Eledro, the lightest of us all, would share a black wagon that Cole had chained to the motorcycle. So many feet behind the motorcycle, there was a wagon being dragged by a chain. Quiet Faust was in a beige backpack carried by Cole. Throughout all deliberations and preparations, neither the Kaiser nor his feline emitted a sound. We rode off toward the Andes at around 40 miles per hour due to the heavy load. The late afternoon was beautiful and all that could be seen or heard was our vehicle blowing dust into the air. Everyone was quiet and we all acquired that imperturbable zombie facha which means face, that all travelers have. I looked to my left and saw a large vineyard. How peaceful is the life on the vineyards? I, th I said to Grano. Then I looked to my right and saw that Grano was anxiously waiting to tell me something. What is it, Grano? I asked. Look at the Kaiser. He has a very strange smile. Strange it was. I never saw a face containing so much happiness, but happiness of the sad type the type tangos are made of. It must have been elicited by the natural beauty of Mendoza's vineyards, I thought. Hasman scanned the rows of grapevines up and down, over and over. The rest of us looked as well, but we couldn't find what made his experience so blissful. It was only when we reached the rivulet that the Kaiser uttered a word. Though nobody understood what the madman was saying, we all knew that it wasn't pleasant. Apparently, he was cursing at the sky. In cannon-like blasts, he would utter the same expression, maybe changing one or two words. We implicitly concluded that if Faust, his closest companion, remained indifferent to all this, then so should we. After several hours, we reached the serpentine roads by which we would climb into the Andes and reach the town of Coronado. The sun of our afternoon had disappeared, and no moon could yet be seen. The sky belonged to no one. The amber lights of the town of Coronado were in view, and we approached them slowly. It was a real small town, purportedly made up of only those people who worked down in the vineyards. To everyone's surprise, except the Kaiser, not a soul was there. Wires ran from rooftop to rooftop, suspending light bulbs which served as the town's only source of illumination. We saw abandoned homes, empty grocery stores, and a vacated police station that was painted in a color between blue and green. The motorcycle became now louder and louder as it echoed through the empty buildings. Pachito noted that the town had no church. This is a miserable town, said Aledro from the wagon. I will tell people that Coronado is a piece of crap. I can't believe the professor mentioning the city in the Andes with such gravitas. The Kaiser drove us directly to the Coronado Municipal Cemetery, where Grono immediately lost control of his bladder. It wasn't the type of trip we had imagined, not at all. Once the motor of his motorcycle stopped, our hearing was restored. 
Following the lead of the young German, we entered the abandoned cemetery through rusty iron gates. Slowly, he marched to one of the few marked graves upon which he fixated upon a sacred marble that read W.V. Hassman. Weeds hugged the stone as if protecting it. We all stood there for seven long minutes until Max von Hassmann produced his second Spanish utterance of the day. Por qué? How could you? He said, throwing his hat on the ground. You be good witnesses, he said to us. Do not be like the people of San Luis who lost discipline after only six years of coming here. What lies below is a man who has taken all from his son, his son's glory, his son's wealth, and closest to his son's heart, his son's Camila Piquiello. No! Fame was not enough for this charming man, the great Herr Hassmann. He had to have it all. The Kaiser then dropped to his knees and with tears and two fists in the air said, Let the whole world know the truth. Let the night and the Andes know my rage. And that is why I have been bringing witnesses, yes, witnesses here every week for the last six years, no matter how far the distance, no matter how long the time, no matter how much the fuel. A noise from the wagon startled us, but we could see that it was just Faust, who casually walked up to the tombstone and pissed on the grave as if he had pissed on it many times before. Confused and perplexed, Cole's pupils cyclically dilated and constricted, a symptom of his deep thought. One could almost read the machinations inside his head, and we all knew that if anyone understood what all this was about, it would be crazy Cole. Are the old gossips who lack hallucinogens right? Was the professor wrong? Is this the result of some father and son duel over a woman, a vineyard girl by the name of Miss Picciello? Thought Cole. Did this maiden fall in love with the Kaiser's father because the elder had more fame and charm? Where is she today? Is she alive? thought Cole. Despite all the mystery, no one asked any questions, at least not out loud. The Kaiser soon regained his presence of mind, and without any words, we all started heading back to our city, which we already missed very much. Again, we passed through the rusty iron gates of the cemetery. Underneath the moonlight, as the Kaiser angrily rode his vehicle through the Andes, the silhouettes of hundreds of giant condors could be seen atop the mountains flanking our right. The condors were perched side by side as if in military formation, as if waiting for some signal. I never saw anything like it. Bohemians were terrified by this newly discovered state of affairs, but they said nothing and maintained their travel facha, that is, the imperturbable face that people hold while traveling. In less than 15 seconds, the giant condors took flight, ascending toward the flickering stars. Their wingspan must have been more than 20 feet. We all watched in awe as they launched in different directions. The beasts dominated the skies. They were in their element. We were miles from ours. You hear that? asked Cole. I heard the word yetst, yetst, fill the skies one second before the animals took flight, but I can't tell where the sound originated, nor do I know what it means. Grono and I did not hear a thing, but we never doubted Cole. 
the shadows of the giant condors circled around us. Our speed was now reduced to 29 miles per hour. In the middle of nowhere, we were as vulnerable as a shell-less snail in a cobweb. Astonishingly, the Kaiser remained completely unaware of the creatures, but this did not last long. Noticeable to all, and with a loud shriek, one of the giant beasts dove down and tried to snatch innocent Faust from the beige bag. Faust showed no fear as always. Fortunately, Pachito hit the huge beast on the head with Grano's dried salami. As soon as we thought we had ourselves a victory, we saw seven condors take the body of Max von Hassmann up into the night. As he ascended toward the moon, the Kaiser kicked and cursed, saying, Mundo de mierda! Without its driver, the motorcycle decelerated, and Cole stared straight at the Andes and said, You may not believe this, but the beast had the face of a German general. I saw it right before my eyes. Yes, must mean something in German. No one had the time to understand what Cole meant. Fat Grano took the wheel. Now that the wagon was ditched, he managed to raise our speed to 50 miles per hour, but we soon realized that we had ourselves another casualty. Faust the cat was gone. The feline was taken by two condors, but did not complain at all. And so no one noticed a thing. Perhaps he wanted to go up with his commander, said Puchito. One has to respect that they went to their death being who they always were, said Cole. The Kaiser went up cursing and kicking, and the cat went up with no complaints. Immediately the condors vanished into the mountains, as if their mission had been accomplished. It wasn't until we reached the rivulet that things seemed substantially less ominous. But something unreal and quite sublime happened at the vineyards, right before dawn. Eleven of the bad lights that Professor Riverola spoke about were there, but they looked like beautiful young women. They were playing around on the fields and all had the same Italian faccia. Of course, Grano stopped the motorcycle and we all began to run between the rows of green grapes, chasing these apparitions. I remember that the grapes looked gray in the moonlight. After several games of hide and seek, Pachito tried to hug one of the maidens and fell right through her body. We must evacuate immediately. I understand what is going on, said Cole while starting the motor of the motorcycle. The gossips must have been somewhat right about the Kaiser, but the professor was even more right about the Andes. It is all in the geography and the observer. Don't attempt to touch the 11 Camila Piquelos, for they did not spring from your minds. They were created while the Kaiser was remembering his lost love soon after leaving the Astoria. That's why he was smiling on the way to Coronado. And those flying monsters north of the rivulet must have been born from his insatiable rage. Poor Kaiser. Too bad that he did not drive slower toward Coronado. He may have lived to see his lost love instead of the condors. I guess the Andes, like all things, need time. And nobody except me understood. We returned to the Astoria conspicuously lacking the Kaiser and his companion. But, 
as was customary in the provinces, no one asked any questions. Looking back, I think that the Kaiser was not prepared to deal with this wretched life. He lacked the training that I received from Uncle Isidro, the spinach.